Let's go. Let's go. Oh, no. Do you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next one. I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party. I'm so sorry. You don't need to do that. You don't need to apologize. It's a fucked up female habit. You don't need to be sorry for anything ever. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? I don't have rage issues! I have nothing to prove to you. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where one of us is floating away because the rain is endless. <laughs> and it's not the one you think. <laughs> That's true. So. <laughs> and I'm Karen Peterson, joined by the awesome and dry Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. Yes, we are, are comparatively dry, apparently. Like the past <laughs> few days, we haven't had any rain. Like, it's been really, really briefly this morning, but that's just, that's just about it. So <laughs> where I work, um, we got snow the other day and to the, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't enough to like throw snowballs or anything, anything like that. But, and we usually get a little bit of snow about once a year or so at, at my work. Cause it's up a little bit in elevation. But, um, the other day it was just like, it was crazy. We had snow on the freeway in a place where I have never in my life seen snow. And I have lived in this area for a long long time <laughs> so <laughs> it was crazy and i was talking to a friend who lives in dc oh portland who was on our our episode mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago and she was like um yeah it's 76 here <laughs> i was just like i don't even understand what's happening <laughs> <laughs> but no the climate's not changing definitely not that can't be it yeah it's definitely like i mean in here in new york we have not we usually get at least one big snow a year in in the city and we have not gotten it at all this year like and and i i don't think that as far as i know we're not predict like it's too late in the year now we're not really predicted to get it um although you know stranger things have happened but um yeah it's very weird just like i i mean i i think i messaged you the other day i was like do you have a blizzard warning (laughs) we did yeah um the last time there was a blizzard warning in the los angeles mountains was in i think 1989 they said but i live at the base of the san bernardino mountains which also had a blizzard warning and as far as my research has shown me that has never happened (laughs) because the san bernardino mountains are a little bit warmer so it's never they just don't get blizzards if they get snow and they have ski resorts and stuff, but they just have, it's never gotten to that point. So yeah, it was crazy. And they've been warning us all week that this was coming. So it was, it was a little bit of, um, the rain's been crazy, but it was a little bit of a whimper just because they were predicting the snow level down to a thousand feet, which is crazy. Um, and, and like at one point they were projecting the mountain that I live below, was going to get seven to 10 feet of snow, possibly even more than that. And that hasn't happened because things did warm up a little bit. So instead of being, you know, 31 degrees, it's 41 degrees. So it's still really Uh cold and it's raining and it has not stopped. Like it seriously has not stopped since yesterday. It's still raining right now. So lots of fun. Good times. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, really quickly before we jump into our main topic today, um, Lauren, you finally watched Megan. 
I did. Yes. I, uh, I watched Megan last night. It is out on Peacock, mm-hmm. um, which I was very excited about because I didn't go to see it in theaters, but, um, and I did watch the theatrical release. I didn't watch. There's also an unrated version apparently on Peacock. Uh, but I was like, no, I want to see like what they actually released. I, you know, I, I, unless there's like something really major that they've changed, um, I'm more interested in that, but yeah, I, I enjoyed the crap out of it. Like, <laughs> that was such a fun film. And I liked the fact that on the one hand, it was like, it's not as crazy as malignant. Right. Um, and I didn't really expect it to be, but I, I like the fact that it balanced this, like actually interesting kind of critique about uh, the way that we engage with technology and also the use of technology is kind of a stand-in for actual human connection, right? And I, so I liked that there were actually those serious elements to it in the midst of this story about this like AI robot who become who's essentially gains <laughs> sentience and the sentience that she gains is I'm gonna fucking kill people. Like, <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. It had some great lines. Um, and, and I liked, you know, people complain about uh, it, oh, PG-13 horror. And it's like, first of all, PG-13 horror, that's the way the most of us get introduced to horror. If I had seen some of the like, you know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Exorcist or something like that when I was a kid, I would never watch horror. Right. Because it would have scarred me so badly and scared me so badly that I would never have gone back to watch those movies. But like I, you know, I was mentally scarred by gremlins when I was a kid. <laughs> um, you know, poltergeist, some some of those like more comparatively mild kinds of horror films were the way that I got into horror to begin with. So this whole idea that like PG-13 horror shouldn't be made or isn't or isn't scary or isn't compelling for for viewers is just like bullshit sometimes oh, totally. i like totally, yeah. sometimes i like my horror films just like oh this isn't gonna be like uber violent but it might be a bit scary i like that that's okay to like yeah you sometimes yeah. you want it to be scary but a little bit gentle <laughs> so. yeah it's just like i don't really need to see a bunch of blood and guts and you know like murdering various people and animals and things like that and it can still be frightening but yeah. just not as like intense I was totally. upset about the dog, I will admit. Yes, yes. The the thing with the dog was very upsetting, but um I I never did tell you my story about Watcher in the Woods, did I? No, no, you didn't. <laughs> so oh my gosh. So it was I was eight years old. It was Christine Truitt's birthday party, and she had a slumber party. And it was one of the first slumber parties I went to. She just lived right up the street. I mean, it was we used to walk to each other's houses all the time. We were on the same street. We lived like eight houses away from each other. But anyway, so this one night, uh, she had gone to Video City and gotten a Watcher in the Woods, which was this you know really scary movie about this house that was maybe haunted. And um, and so we started watching it, and it's there's this family they're from america but they go dad is like a conductor or something like for orchestras and so he um so he takes a job outside of london and the family moves to this big house like this big estate because of course you would why not and it's out in the country there's woods all around and the older daughter who's teenager starts seeing things and then the younger sister who was around our age um she she starts like just talking about Narek and um 
and she like gets a puppy and she names the puppy Narek and she writes Narek all over the place. And the sister one day, like the older sister one day sees that she's written this and she sees it backwards and realizes she's spelling out Karen, which is this name that she keeps hearing. And that's terrifying when you're eight years old and your name is Karen. (laughs) This movie was so scary. We had to turn it off. We could not handle it. We were just like, this is terrifying. And so we finished it the next day in daylight and it was, you know, it was a really fun. It was hilarious that we were so scared, but it was, but it, you know, it was also very scary. Mm-hmm. So for years I was telling my family about this really terrifying movie we watched at Christine Truitt's birthday party and um, that I really wanted to watch it again and see how scary it really was. And so I was like 15 and my mom and my brother and I had this tradition. By now, Video City was long gone, which was sad. And Blockbuster Video had come in. And so we had this tradition of Friday nights. When we had a weekend where we didn't have anything going on, we'd go down to, to Blockbuster. We'd you know pick out a couple of movies, one for Friday, one for Saturday. And then we'd go home with like a pizza or whatever. And so this was a Friday night and it was near Halloween. And I was just like, it's time, you guys. We need to find a watcher in the woods. I really want to watch it. I really need you guys to see this terrifying movie. And so I'm I'm down there. I'm looking through the horror section. It's not there. I'm looking through the thrillers. I'm like, well, it'd be weird if it was in drama, but I guess maybe. So I'm looking all over the place. I cannot find this. And it just was like, oh, I guess they don't have it. And my mom says, well, why don't you just go ask at the front? Maybe maybe it's just like placed somewhere weird or, or maybe they just checked it out or something. So I go up front and ask, and the guy at the counter is just like, oh, he's typing in. He's like, I'm pretty sure we have that. And he looks, and he goes, oh, yeah, it's in family favorites. <laughs> <laughs> My brother laughed at me so hard. <laughs> and so we went and got it, and we took it home, and we watched it, and I was still scared. My brother was like, this movie is dumb. And my mom's like, no, I could see when it's frightened you at age eight. I'm like, mom, it's frightening me at age 15. <laughs> well, there are those films. That it's, isn't watching the ones a Disney film or it's owned yep. by Disney, something yeah. like that? Yeah, it, there are those films that like get under your skin too, for whatever reason, they just like, and I, I definitely having your name be one of the <laughs> the things in the film, that would be, that would freak anybody out no matter I what. I also blame Betty Davis. She's pretty creepy. Oh, Betty Davis is always creepy. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly if elderly Betty Davis shows up and anything, you just say, oh, it's going to get in weird. All it's like, going to get weird. weird and creepy. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. So that's my Watcher in the Woods story. That's great. <laughs> and I that's still great. love that movie. So many of us have those kinds of stories, though. I mean, like where you're like, oh, it's the scariest movie in the world. And then you watch it again. And it's like. It may not have been as scary as I as I thought it was. Right, my, I, I might my, have misremembered this a little bit. My my mother um has she she showed me when I was a kid she showed me Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Oh um, yeah, which is another Disney film, and her the way that she described it because again this is one of those films that she saw when she was a kid um in like a, at the movie theater i think and the way that she described it, was just like it's terrifying it's all about this banshee <laughs> and of course the banshee the banshee does show up in this film um <laughs> but not until the very very end of the film and it's creepy i absolutely yeah. agree with my mother it's it's scary like it's that disney level of scariness um but we were i remember watching this my dad being like 
what where's the banshee like is the banshee like the scary that's the scary thing and it was just like we've got sean connery singing songs and leprechauns <laughs> dancing and like and and yeah it was one of those where and my mom was like i think that i may have built it up more in my mind <laughs> so but yeah those things those are the things just it was about a banshee because that was the the thing that stuck yeah, well, and if it's at the end of the movie, uh, like that does stick with you a little bit more. So it's scary too. There's yeah, like it the, is. Yeah. the carriage and the headless carriage, the uh, headless, oh, headless yeah. carriage driver, and like it's frightening. It's a I scary. I haven't seen that thing. movie in probably thirty five years. So, <laughs> well, well, St. Patrick's Day is coming up, so definitely true. time to rewatch Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Yes, that is true. <laughs> uh, and yeah, Sean Connery sings "My Pretty Irish Girl" and is very young and pretty himself. So, oh, he is. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed Megan. I I did enjoy it a lot and I do recommend it to people, like, especially if it's a, I think it has a good balance of like creepiness and humor and um, that kind of bat shitness that uh, we've been getting more and more, especially with Bloomhouse productions. It's, it's a lot of fun and it's on Peacock. It's, it's absolutely worth a watch. Nice. So um, we are celebrating birthdays this weekend because um my birthday is this week by the time you're listening to this episode it has it either is my birthday or it has passed um but i share my birthday with some famous people as most people do um some of the celebrities that i share my birthday with are josh groban kate mara noah emmerich um um i don't even know who else but uh some some lots of cool people but the biggest star with whom i share my birthday is elizabeth taylor i think she's the biggest star i think Um, so definitely yeah she's a star i mean like you know capital s (laughs) yeah exactly exactly and and just one of the one of the greatest and um yeah so we decided to talk about Miss Elizabeth Taylor, who was born on this day, February 20, no, not on this day necessarily, uh, but was born on February 27th, 1932. And interesting fact about, about her, she was born in London, but her parents were American. So she like basically had dual citizenship <laughs> so from birth. So I just thought that was a fun fact, but um, anyway, so we decided to pick a couple of very specific movies about or from her filmography to talk about today. And so we're going to do that. So uh, we're talking about Father of the Bride, A Place in the Sun and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which is an interesting progression of, yeah. <laughs> of films, I think. Um, so not her first nor her last films, but um but just like you can really see a transition in her star power mm-hmm. there. So, um, so first of all, uh, Father of the Bride, which came out in 1950. Um, now, Elizabeth Taylor is the bride, but she's not the star of this movie because it really is about the father of the bride, who is played by Spencer Tracy. Um, so, yeah, so Father of the Bride also stars uh, Spencer Tracy as the father of the bride, uh, Joan Bennett. Don Taylor as um, Buckley Dunstan, so, who is the <laughs> groom. Did you? Did I cut out again? 
no no not not at all i just like find the name buckley hilarious it is such a such a hilarious <laughs> name yes exactly um and then his parents are played by billy burke and moroni olson fun fact about moroni olson as soon as i saw his name i was like that dude was raised mormon for sure because that was a very mormon name and i looked him up and not only was i correct and he's from utah he went to my college <laughs> i was excited about that because nobody goes to my college nobody famous went to my college so i was just very excited about that so anyway he's he's a uh he's a big character actor too he's in a yeah. lot of things yeah um i didn't i, I somehow he had just kind of mismarried i've seen him in a lot of stuff but i had never like connected his name to his face before so mm-hmm. then i was just like wait a second so yeah i was just excited about that anyway um father of the bride what are your is this was you'd seen it before hadn't you or was this your well, first time? I honestly do not know if I had seen it before because I recognized the opening scene mm-hmm. and where, where you know, it's like Spencer Tracy sitting in the middle of just the remnants of the wedding, the remnants of the party and reflecting on um, every everything that has come to pass. I honestly, that is all I, I remember. I do not remember. I did not remember the rest of the film. So either I had seen the film and just like forgot everything about it or I had like caught the opening at some point and then never watched the entire film. So I would count this as uh, as my first viewing, really, because it's the first time I remember it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I'd, I'd seen, of course, the original, the uh, the remake with Steve Martin and <laughs> Diane Keaton um, from the 1990s, and I'm always I'm I am amazed by like. They're supposed to be, it's supposed to be the same class, right? Sort of upwardly mobile middle class, mm-hmm. not wealthy, but not like poor or anything like that. It's, it's kind of the suburbanites of the 1950s and the 1990s. The house in the original Father of the Bride is so small in comparison to the house in the remake. Like it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's it's a massive difference. Well, in the remake, to be fair, he does have his own business. So, and his, I think he and Nina both have their own businesses. So I think they're a little bit more successful than, um, uh, than in the original, but still mm-hmm. not quite wealthy. Cause when you see the Bel Air houses, it's like, oh yeah, they, they, they definitely can't afford that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, it was, in, you know, it's one of those films that I'm not certain whether I would necessarily label it as being a good film. Um, but it is very much a snapshot of the 1950s, of the the early 50s, like that kind of post-war um, uh, up, like I said, upwardly mobile suburbanite kind of the this is this is what we're supposed to desire. This is what we're supposed to aspire to, and it's it's interesting at that level. Um, but at the same time, I'm just watching it and I'm like. Honestly, this makes me want to die. This is this is exactly the kind of world that I am so glad I do not have to live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the 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 sort of and the film doesn't isn't really making a commentary on it particularly. It's more like you know just like oh, and it's so difficult getting your daughter married off and all of this stuff. And I'm sitting there going like, oh my god, this is why housewives took Valium. This is why like <laughs> this is why we had women's lib. This is it. This yep. is symbolic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and we've been watching. You and I have been watching a bunch of those <laughs> lately. But yeah, um, kind of funny. But <laughs> excuse me, sorry. Um, 
But uh, it's it's funny because I remember. So I first saw this movie back when the remake came out in 1991 um, and with Steve Martin and. Um, um, oh, my gosh. Diane Keaton. Thank you. Diane Keaton. I forget. I, forget. <laughs> yeah, I forget who plays the daughter. Annie. Um, no, that is the character's name. Um, ha. Oh, my gosh. Now I got to look it up. I know this. I do. And as soon as I see it, I'm gonna I'm gonna be like, duh. Kimberly Williams. And Kieran Culkin is yeah. the little brother. I'd forgotten yeah. about that too. Yeah. Maddie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so Steve Martin, Diane Keaton, um, again, directed by Nancy Meyer, and um uh, Martin Short is great in it. Anyway, but I, I remember seeing the original film around the time that the that the remake came out because it was like, oh well, you got to compare them, right? And um, and I remember there being a whole thing of like, why don't people just watch the original? Which is something that you know, I mean, we still have those conversations now. Some movies I I get really irritated that they're remaking them, and other movies it's like, no, I get it. And this is a movie where it's like, no, I I get why they remade this, and why it was good to to update it, because um, even though both movies at their core are about a father who is marrying off his daughter and has a lot of emotions and and frustrations attached to that financially and and otherwise um the the women in the film and what they can do and and what their experiences are as women in suburban families is very different it really reflects the 40 years Mm -hmm. of of change and progress that had happened so so yeah i think that's an understatement Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh but i mean you know i i do have to say it's a it's a well-made film the 1950 film is a well-made film it's great actors like you know that like that trio just there joan bennett um spencer tracy and elizabeth taylor these are really strong actors they're strong performers they're not asked to do very much um even spencer tracy who is sort of the center of the 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 story right like you say it's not really about the bride it's about the father of the bride um but even he's he's not asked to strain himself in any way (laughs) in terms of in terms of comedy or in terms of of anything um so that's that's why it feels like a almost a historical artifact in some ways because Mm -hmm. it represents so clearly a particular class and a particular time period in american history um and and also the aspirations of that because you know you're talking about you're talking about Hollywood's representation of a particular time period. And, uh, and yeah, as, as you said, we've both been watching some films from the 1950s and 60s. And I, I've, I probably watched this at the wrong time because I've recently seen a number of Doris Day Rock Hudson films, which are <laughs> so reactionary that like my ears began bleeding. Like, like it was just, <laughs> I was just like, this actually is, this this is this is why this is why the patriarchy needs to be toppled like this exactly <laughs> um but so as a result watching this just like oh my god like these poor women these poor women like liz taylor is gonna is gonna run off to greenwich village and get into drugs and like do all kinds of things because my god who would want to exist in that world mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> um and, and and I think that your your um 
characterization, I guess, of the film itself and where it fits uh, is very appropriate. I mean, this is a slice of this is like a picture of like a snapshot. That's the word snapshot of American life in 1950 and Mm -hmm. or at least for for some people, (laughs) American suburban life for people who are, as you say, upwardly mobile um in 1950 this definitely is not reflective of most people's experiences of the time period but it is definitely i think what um what a lot of people are referring to when they kind of have this like we want to go back to the good old days i think to them this is the good old days you know yeah it's 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 aspirational like Mm -hmm. that's that's what i'm saying so it's it isn't just like this is what uh, american life was like in 1950 but it's what a it's what Hollywood and what the culture was selling as the things that you were supposed to be. Right. The idea right? you've got, yeah. yeah, you've got the 2.5 kids. Mm-hmm. You've got the big house in the suburbs, you know, you've got a, a good job marrying your eldest daughter off to a man who has a good job. Um, they're going to, they're going to move away and they're going to start their own little family with 2.5 kids. It's the white picket fence kind of aspirations, whether or not that's something that that people actually had and actually wanted a great deal of in the 1950s. Right. Um, but also but where it is people very much want that, to go back to today. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that like, oh, was, wasn't everything perfect. And of course, wa- watching this, you know, like I said, you're sitting there going like, this is, this is just stultifying. Like, mm-hmm. This is just, this is where, like I say, housewives began taking Valium um, or, you know, becoming alcoholics and things like that. And it's even bad for men in a lot of ways, because even if you are a straight white cisgender man, um, you're still like, you're required on all of these things. And like some of the the things that even Spencer Tracy in this film has to do, right? It's just like, well, here are the, all of the things that are expected of him as the father, and and he's like, why? Why do I have to do this? Why can we? Why can't they just run away and, uh, you know, get married in a judge's office like my wife and I did? Um, but there's all this this like trappings, I guess, of um, of what is expected of suburban life in that period. Yes, I I did crunch some numbers because I thought this was really funny when they're talking about how much the wedding is going to cost per person. Um, he, so he's originally quoted $3 and 75 cents a head. And that is with 280 people coming to the reception, which is $1,050 in 191950. Um, and in 2023, that is, um, $13,204. That's all he's willing. No, he's not even willing to spend that on the wedding that's too much which is hilarious because i don't know a single wedding that (laughs) anywhere close to being only thirteen thousand dollars and he wants to get that price tag down to um what was it five hundred and sixty two dollars and fifty cents he's not willing to spend more than that you're not going to invite more than you know more than 150 people the 151st person can't come and that is seven thousand seventy four dollars in in 2023 money yes that sounds like a very manageable wedding i have to say uh <laughs> totally <laughs> <laughs> i just am, i'm just imagining how much spencer tracy would be yelling at inflation in 2023 <laughs> <laughs> and just also not just inflation but also like 
societal expectations thanks to Instagram and TikTok and Pinterest. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I, I mean, the, the wedding industry. And I think part of this film is kind of critiquing the wedding industry, all of these things yep. that you have to have in order to you know keep up with the Joneses, as it were. Um, and, and that's, that's part of what the film is doing, but ultimately it all pays off because it's this beautiful wedding and she's a beautiful bride and isn't everything wonderful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, this, and this whole idea about like, you're giving your daughter away to another man, you know, it's, it's, um, I think Tracy even quotes like your, your son's your son until you get him a wife, but your daughter's your daughter all of her life or something mm -hmm. like that. <laughs> and it's, but it is that like possessiveness that like, oh, he, he's giving her to this man. Right. right. Um, who, who, by the way, can we talk about how Buckley is like the most boring human being on oh the my planet? Gosh. Yes. And I want to know why, like, we never really see the her and Buckley outside of the household, right? We don't really see them interact beyond like what her parents see. Right. So they're, but I really want to know like, why are you marrying this man? <laughs> <laughs> Which was also kind of true of George Newbern in the remake as well um, with Steve Martin, because he's just kind of this sort of cute, but generally blah boy. And it's like, really? Annie, this is who you pick. This is who you're in love with. <laughs> um, but but yeah, we just we don't get to see what their relationship looks like. We never do. We only ever get glimpses of it through her eyes. And she's this starry-eyed young girl who is just excited to be marrying the man that she loves. Well, she's um, also she's she's 20, right? Yes, she's supposed yeah. to be 20 and he's 26. Mm-hmm. And I was happy about that, actually, because I think Liz Taylor was actually about 18 when they made this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 18, 19, something like that. And so so there, there was definitely this this sense of like, is this OK? Are we OK <laughs> with this? Like, I mean, 2026. 20, yeah, he's he's older, but it's not like ridiculously older and she's not ridiculously young. Right. Um which yeah. it can be much worse. But she is so young that her big reason for wanting to call off the wedding and being so upset that she just cannot marry this man is because he's going to take her on a salmon fishing trip for their honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know what? I, I'm going to defend her on this one a little bit because she points out, and I think that she's quite right, well, if yes. he doesn't care what I think now about like this the beginning of our marriage right mm -hmm. he's not going to listen to me any other time like i'm not going to win any other time right um so if he thinks that it's okay because he wants to go salmon fishing that we should go that that's what we should do on our honeymoon then that's kind of indicative of the way that we're going to spend the rest of our life and at that point i was like don't marry him just don't he's <laughs> the most boring man you can find plenty of boring men like, there's so many boring men in the world. <laughs> Just don't yeah. marry this guy. Although I would say, uh, yeah, marry him and then take half his money. Because this guy's going places. And then do better <laughs> sure. on your second marriage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but no, that's a, that is a good point. And it's, it's not really so much about the, um, about where they're going. It's about the fact that he's not respecting her and her opinion. And... And even at a young age, she's able to recognize that, which is which is is good. Um, and so let's let's talk a little bit about this role as Elizabeth Taylor is is because um, before this, before Father of the Bride, she had 
been a child star. She had done um, like um, National Velvet. She'd been Amy in Little Women. So she had done much younger roles. This is kind of kind of one of her first roles as an adult. And and of course, it's her getting married and and um, entering adulthood in that way. So um, so what are your thoughts about this film as kind of a bridge for Taylor? Well, one of the things that I was interested in in watching her is that she's so recognizable, right? She's so she's so Elizabeth Taylor. Um, and and it is this moment where she's transitioning, like literally from being a child star to being an adult star, and is and begins then in the 1950s, and even within you know the next film that we're going to talk about, playing increasingly more adult roles and um not being kind of as wide-eyed, I guess. And but what's interesting is that in this film particularly, she really is an image. She's like the perfect bride, basically. She's the perfect daughter. She is this constructed image of what a young womanhood is supposed to be. And it's interesting in light of, you know, the way that her career would eventually develop, because at a certain point, she becomes this like sex kitten, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to see that kind of knowing like the different permutations that her career goes through and, and her personal life, because her personal life is very much a factor in her career and vice versa. It, it became part of her star persona. But at this point, she's obviously being sold as like the perfect American girl, basically. Um, and, and she doesn't have much to do beyond that. And I think that I, I've read somewhere that she at this point was getting really tired of MGM and of the amount of power that they had over her. And you got to remember, this is someone who's been acting for years already by the time that she plays this role, but that she wasn't being challenged. She wasn't being given parts that like reflected her, her growing abilities. Um, she was kind of being pushed into this, this image of this girl uh, who that every man wants to marry kind of thing. Yeah. And you definitely do see that tra- that transition here, although it's not fully pronounced because as you as you say, she's sort of more of an image here. She's not she's not at all the main character. We don't really know anything about how she really sees herself or um what, you know, what she is like in her relationship with her, you know, fiance/husband. We only know her through her father's eyes. So, um so even here, it's it it is really that kind of the in between role, but this is where where it kind of begins for her, and then we transition into the next film, which is A Place in the Sun, which mm-hmm. came out a just a year later, which is a little bit surprising. Although I had not actually seen it before, I knew about the movie and I knew the plot and everything, but I hadn't seen it before, and I just assumed that she was a little bit older and a little bit even more mature than she is, because um, she's only nineteen when she does this one, and um. And so it was an it was interesting because, again, in this in A Place in the Sun, she's also still more of the symbol. She's really not a fully fledged character, um, but she's dealing with much bigger, um, uh, heavier um, themes and and subject matter. So, yeah, um, well, in terms of A Place in the Sun, I think a a part of the First of all, Place in the Sun is a much more critical film. It's criticizing yeah. the the plot overall, right? Is criticizing the foundations of American life in a lot of ways and the the kind of 
it's criticizing class and aspirations and things like that and things like that. And she is very much the aspirational girl, right? She's yes. the thing that all men aspire to, to obtain. Right. But it does give her a little bit more flexibility and a little bit more like reality because it shows her as being very closeted in a lot of ways, very, very cloistered. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, her, her family is constantly surrounding her. She's constantly surrounded by people and she has these, desires that stretch way beyond that but she's not allowed to go beyond that and what she sees in in george is an opportunity for something more than just flirtation but something more than than like the things that she has been told she wants and i do think that even though it's not a film that's really about her it does kind of highlight the way in which she has been closed off from experiences and closed off from the rest of the world, basically. And why George in some ways would be aspirational for her because he is so different. And so outside of the things that she has been told she wants and should want and needs to want, and that everybody around her has kind of stopped her from expanding out towards, I guess. Right. Yeah. I have to laugh at this uh, plot summary on IMDb. It says, it says that A Place in the Sun is about a poor boy gets a job working for his rich uncle and ends up falling in love with two women. That, 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 okay. Uh, I mean, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, that's not really what it's about. That's kind of a couple of plot points of it, but that's really not what this movie is about. It's directed by George Stevens. It came out in 1951. Montgomery Clift plays the poor boy, uh, George. Um. George Eastman, who has basically run into his uncle, uh, who is a little bit estranged from the family. His uncle is very successful, owns this big business in the city. And um, but George's family is very poor. His his parents are like missionaries, I think, or some, something like that. And um, they, they run they run a mission. Yeah, yeah. His mother, his mother runs like a Salvation Army style. mission. Right, right, right. Yeah. So so they've been doing that. That's what and they spend a lot of their time like, you know, out in the community and kind of proselyting and working with with poor people and they are themselves very poor. And so he's never gotten to taste the good life. And he has this kind of chance encounter with his uncle who says, hey, come work in my factory. And um, while he's there, he ends up meeting Shelly Winters, who is also very young. Um, And they start a romance and, but he's always got his eye on something else. You know, he's always looking for, for kind of the next step. And his uncle is impressed with the work he's doing and offers him a promotion. And, starts doing that and he starts like taking more of an interest in him and which puts him in the position to meet Elizabeth Taylor's character. And um, so, yeah, he is in this sort of kind of love triangle with these two women and he's kind of balancing in between them, but it's really uh, so much more complicated than that, obviously, Um, especially when Shelley Winters's character uh, who is Alice uh, is in trouble in so much trouble (laughs) (laughs) 
I love how the film, like it, it actually pushes really far in terms of like what it's being allowed to represent, I yeah. guess. Just like, because it's, you know, you know, she's in trouble. She goes to, you know, she goes to a doctor and all that. It never, I, I don't think they ever say she's pregnant. No. Cause I don't think they were right. allowed to use that word. Yeah. But they lay like, I'm going, I, I think at one point she just say, I'm going to have a baby. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and and so it's it's so interesting to watch how the film deals with that and kind of tries to show it and, and tiptoe around it, obviously, while still being able to, you know, please the censors and not not go too far with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is interesting what like what they had to do. And this is where, um, you know, film film tends to either reflect the world that we are in or the world that we could be living in, whether that's good or bad, because, you know, dystopian or, or, or um, aspirational. Um, so it's like, those are, those are kind of the things that film reflects. And so when we see movies like father of the bride and, and it's like, Oh, this is a snapshot of American life. This is just what American life looked like in 1950, which is why so many people want to go back to that. Cause they don't realize that, that wasn't the case for most people. Um, but in 1951 here with uh, a place in the sun, it's like, um, it's, it's kind of one of those surprising things is like, oh, this, this is an experience that a lot of people were having. I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot where mm-hmm. because films of the period tended to be so, um, sexless, or at least it seemed like they were, um, you know, when you're younger and watching these things and you don't know how to read subtext necessarily and you miss a lot of, of very obvious things that people are talking about without talking about them. Um, it makes it seem like this idyllic time where people didn't just get pregnant out of wedlock because that wasn't a thing that happened, you know. <laughs> so when you see a movie like this and you're like, oh, and then there's like. It gets even worse and he won't marry her. And he's trying to not do that. And then he gets even worse and he makes terrible choices. And it's just like, oh, and this is all based on a true story. <laughs> so based yeah, it's on all- it's not the exact true story, but yeah. And and then I don't there. There's actually an earlier film version of this. It's based, is, yeah. uh, so the the novel by Theodore Dreiser is uh, an American tragedy and is based on a true story. And then it was turned into a play. And then at a certain point it was turned into a film in 1931. Um, yeah. So 20 yeah. years before this. And, and if you watch the, uh, I, I want to say it was like Sternberg or some, someone like that who did um, the, the original film. And if you watch the original film, which is able to be a lot more explicit because it's pre-code mm-hmm. um, not as explicit maybe as, as it needs to be, but is it's able to be a lot more explicit about what's happening. It's a very stagey film. It's not as good a film as a place in the sun, but it's able to deal with some of the issues in a more direct way. Uh, and it also shows George's life. So what we get here in a place in the sun is, you know, George's life after he has met his uncle. Right. We see a lot more of his life in the original 1931 film um, before that. So like his relationship with his mother, the kind of permutations that his life has gone through before he kind of reaches this point where he sees a pathway to success and to, you know, he's able to realize his ambition. And so it's, it's a very different kind of approach. And in a lot of ways, it, it highlights more the, the religious issues as well. Um, but in a lot of ways, I, I think that the, the original film, uh, shows the tragedy in, in a clearer light because you see more of where he comes from. Um, 
in this one, so much of that is is basically has, has to be filtered through Montgomery Clift mm-hmm. and his performance. And he's a, he gives a fascinating performance, I think, because on the one hand, you're like, you, are, you're, you might be a murderer, right? <laughs> you you are definitely like using people around you, but there is a certain innocence to him. And I think, and there is a tragedy to him because he wants so badly to achieve something. And, and it's not even clear what it is that he wants to achieve. He wants to be on the inside. He wants to be accepted. Um, he wants to stop being poor. And throughout so much of the film, he's constantly pushed to the outside. He's never allowed in. And there's a wonderful moment, and it's very indicative, I think, of the the trajectory of the rest of the film. There's a moment where he first begins to dance with Angela, who's the uh, Elizabeth Taylor character. And there's a shot where they're both outside of the ballroom and they're dancing kind of alone. And And at that moment, they move into the ballroom together. And it's basically this moment of, it's a turning point in the film because it's when George is accepted into that society. And that's also where his tragedy really begins because it it kind of pushes him on this trajectory that is going to end in, it's either going to end in death or, or heartache one or the other and possibly both. And as, as we see through the rest of the film, it, it does. Yeah. Yeah. And it deals with, so yes, obviously class is a, a big um, theme um, and the desire to move ahead. And it's, it's interesting because at least for me watching this with George, it's, he's willing to do the work. He just needs the opportunity. Um, it's not like he shows up in town and just expects his uncle to just move him right into the top office. You know, he's willing to start at the bottom. And he even has an early conversation with Shelly Winters where he tells her, um, she's telling him like, this is what's going to happen for you. Your uncle's going to do this and this is going to happen because you're an Eastman. And he's just like, no, no, no. Cause he hasn't ever lived with abundance, um, before. And, and so he doesn't necessarily think that that will happen. But then once it does start to, it's very interesting how quickly he shifts into um, like he, he basically is ghosting Alice. He's, he's ready to just walk away and not talk to her again because his, his mind is already on the next thing. His eyes are already on the next thing. And the reason that he's kind of stuck with her quote unquote is because she is now pregnant and she cannot get an abortion. And so she mm-hmm. demands the next thing, which is like, okay, well now you have to marry me. And, um, and it's, it's interesting um, seeing this kind of, um, I guess this kind of plot point playing out in the time where that, you know, I mean, even now there's, there are pockets of society where that is the expectation like well if you're pregnant you're gonna get married obviously is because you know (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. the solution to things um but that's where like yeah that happens at the same time that he is spending more time with with uh angela who is part of this society that he desperately wants to belong to and she's also beautiful and and so kind and she doesn't question his background she just kind of you know she accepts him and so because she does other people do too and um 
and just seeing what that does for him and and sort of this flex he it's not that he's a bad person it's not that he ever you know wants to to be but he just be kind of kind of becomes blinded by um what he feels he needs in his life yeah he he's he has this aspiration to be something Mm-hmm. And to not be poor. And I, there are a couple of scenes where he basically says that, where he says, like, I, I don't know what it's like to, to not be poor, basically. Right. Um, and and he he has that with with Angela. He's like, so one of the things that I kept on questioning on on this watch, it's been a, it had been a long time since I'd seen a place in the sun. But one of the things I kept on thinking about was, does he really love Angela? Right. Is she just like. He does. He wants her. He desires her. I think that she loves him. I do think that she falls in love with him, and but he also seems to want what she represents. So yeah. it's everything, right? And the question that kept on kind of springing up as I was watching this, just like I don't think that he. I don't think that he's leading her on in the sense that like, oh, he's going to marry her, and he's only. Do- I don't think that he's like crassly ambitious, but he's so confused. And so desperate to not be poor, I guess, and to be accepted at some level that it's like he, that is his, his constant attraction. So she is, she becomes the symbol again. Um, She's symbolic of, of him escaping at some level. Right. Which, and sorry, I'm going to just spoil this movie for anybody who hasn't seen it. It is available on canopy. I think is where I watched it um and it's available it's, to rent in some other places too it's it's also on pluto tv oh if, okay uh, yeah with with uh ads but still it is available on pluto tv there you go um anyway so sorry if you don't want to have it spoiled i'm gonna just go ahead and skip forward a couple minutes but um but to just what you were saying as far as it's not necessarily that he loves her he loves what she represents and i think we do see that when um, when Alice shows up, when he's gone off with with Angela's family out at the lake and and he's having a good old time, he's enjoying his time and he has lied to Alice. I have to go. This is going to be good for my career. This is what's going to help us get where we need to be. And um, then Alice finds out, no, he's having fun <laughs> with some hot girl. And uh, so she shows up and she's basically telling him, if you don't marry me, I'm going to go and tell Angela's family um, what's going on. I'm going to tell them about myself, you know, and and they're going to just kick you out. You're going to lose everything. And so at that point, that's where he's like, "Okay, well, I guess I have no choice. And so he's going to marry her. They go to the courthouse. The only reason they can't get married that day is because it's closed for the holidays, Labor Day weekend. And. Um, and so that's where you see that really as much as he is drawn to Angela and as much as he obviously does like her, um, she's not the most important thing to him because he's willing to marry Alice who he doesn't want to marry, um, in order to save his, um, his chances at, a at a career. That's really ultimately yeah. what his main goal is. Yeah, but e- even that, I think that, you know, he's still, there's still a very good chance that he's going to be ruined as a result mm-hmm. of it because suddenly, like, he left. He told them that, you know, oh, I've got to go take care of my mother or something like that. Right. And he turns around and it turns out that he's he's run off and gotten married and, and things like that. And I, I think that that is where the tragedy comes in. There comes a point where, because of the choices that he has made 
and because of the world that he exists in, things get worse and worse, yeah. right? And and no one, everyone is kind of trapped in a lot of ways. Like Alice is trapped. Mm-hmm. She tries to get an abortion. They won't give her an abortion. She she doesn't have many options. You know, he's like, well, just, you know, go home to your family. And, and like, I can't go home to my family. Like if when it, when it becomes visible that I'm pregnant and I'm not married, they're going to kick me out of my house. They're going to kick me out of, of my job. Like this is... So she's trapped. She's not trying to entrap him initially. Um, She is caught up in this. He's trapped because of her pregnancy and because of um, the the class desires and and all of the like American society, basically. Angela is trapped in a lot of ways. She's constantly surrounded by these people who want to control her life. Mm -hmm. And and don't let her, you know, go off with a man that she's in love with. And, you know, or like they have to hide. Basically, they have to like find these little corners where they're able to have a kiss or something like that Mm -hmm. Um, because she's constantly being watched. And so everyone is kind of trapped in the system. And that's ultimately what makes it tragic because as things progress, like George, you know, and again, spoiler alert, George doesn't really want to kill um, Alice. Right. But he also doesn't know what to do. Yeah. He doesn't see another way out. Yeah. And then and and then the argument, one of the things I think is really interesting in, in this adaptation, and I don't remember if the same is true in the um, original film or in the play, but is that there is this question of did he mean to kill her? Right. Did he? So he they definitely go out like he takes her out on the, the boat with the intention of killing her, but he claims. I couldn't do it. I, I could I did not mean for her to die. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, he's ultimately convicted for for murdering her because he didn't um, try to save her. Yeah, and and that's that's the question. But it's interesting because in this film we don't see it. We see them going off of the boat, and then we see him kind of crawling in, basically. So we don't see that middle point. It's no. never answered. We, we right? did. Yeah, when he we see her? them on the boat. Yeah. Yeah, and she stands up, and then she falls and into the water, over. and then he goes in, and it's like he goes in on the same side she does. Yeah. So yeah, so it's like, but that's uh, what I'm saying is that that's we don't actually see him committing murder, and we don't actually see him swimming away from her. True. That's my point. True. So but the, we, but, the argument but, is that he leaves her to drown. Right. And but right before his argument is that he he doesn't basically. Yeah. So that that's that was all of my point was was that. We don't, there's a little slice of what George tells us that we never actually see on screen. True. We and, don't actually see him like hold her under the water or, or just or decide to he's not going to save her, right? Or but, try to save her or, or not, right? So it's, do, there's an open question. Right. But we do see him try to get her to sit down because she's rocking the boat. And so he does try to get her to not fall into the water in the first place. So that's mm-hmm. where to me, it's like, yeah, I don't think he actually intended to kill her. I So it's such a weird situation because it's like when they go out on that boat, he does. He plans on it, but then he kind of backs yeah. off. And so it's like when he first leaves, that is first degree murder. It is premeditated and it is intentional. But then what happens, regardless of whether at that point he actually decided he wanted to, um, it's it seems like at that point it becomes manslaughter because he doesn't do it on purpose, but he has created the conditions mm-hmm. for her to die. And yeah, it is and 
And and that I think that that's what's so tragic about it. And there is there's sympathy all around, and also culpability all around. Yeah. Um. And and all of the characters, and that's why it's called an American tragedy. That's why the original story was called that. All of the characters are trapped in tragic circumstances. Right. Yeah. And so then we see him very quickly make a lot of mistakes and tell some conflicting stories and get arrested <laughs> and uh and the trial does not go in his favor because i mean everything about him from the outside he looks completely guilty because because the the point is like whether he ended up in the mean in the when it came down to it whether he ended up really wanting to or if he had backed off and chickened out um he had gone out there with the intent to do it and mm-hmm. and so it's like from the outside and he even kind of acknowledges that and so it's like if i were on that jury there's no way i wouldn't have been able to convict him especially at that time you know it's like no he's just trying to get rid of this girl because that gets rid of his problems he thinks so Mm -hmm. then he gets sentenced to the electric chair and then elizabeth taylor comes and tells him that she will love him all her life and he says no don't do that I actually really like the moment where he where she tells him this and then he says, no, just love me until I'm gone and then forget me and move on. It's it's one of the truly selfless things that he does. Yeah. Um, because for in, in a moment, he's like, I care more about what happens to you in your future than mm-hmm. this like brief knowledge that I'm that I'm about to die anyways. Right. Um, that you will love me forever and ever. He's just like forget me right please go on move on yeah and i think part of that probably comes from growing up poor growing up in a family where he was not treated as anything significant or important and so for him he's never really felt important because he's never been to society and so it's like he had this this time where he was starting to get there, but ultimately he didn't. And so for him to it, it seem it doesn't it doesn't seem surprising to me that he would kind of selflessly tell her just like move on and forget me. Like don't don't let me hold down your entire life. You've got your mm-hmm. future ahead of you because he never was he never would have seen himself as an important enough person for that in the first place. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that that's that's a good observation. Yeah. Um so uh, this kind of marks I don't know. I was going to say this kind of marks the end of Elizabeth Taylor's more um young and innocent roles, but I'm looking to see if that's entirely true. <laughs> I I think that this is she's shifting and from from a father uh father of the bride into this film and then some of her later films so there there's a big gap between Mm -hmm. between this film and the next film that we're going to talk about but in that gap she gets older right Mm -hmm. she and she does cease to be this i think that both of these films are like this is about elizabeth taylor as an image as an aspiration right and as her career goes on she stops being that she stops getting cast in those same kind of roles um, and becomes more and more, first of all, she, she ends up in more challenging roles, but she becomes more and more a complex, difficult, uh, you know, complicated woman mm-hmm. um, in, in the roles that she winds up playing. There's some space in between. There. I think she does like Ivanhoe. She does Bo Brummel. 
Um, and then she gets into things like Giant, where she kind of has become more and more of an adult actress. Yeah, yeah. But by 1958, she uh, stars in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with Paul Newman. And oh my gosh, those two together on screen. <laughs> it's just, it's too much. It is too much. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know the first time i saw cat on a hot tin roof i was like you you asked me to believe that these two people have not had sex in like ages <laughs> like you, that they're just like they're just like i don't want to i don't want to sleep with you i mean i i said i said on twitter i'm gonna say it again this is the most relatable role that liz taylor has as a woman <laughs> who just desperately wants to have sex with paul newman like mm-hmm. she the entire film she's just like i badly want to go to bed with Paul Newman. That's like all she's trying to do. That's all. And you know, I mean that's all any of us would have wanted to do. Um uh yeah, we'll we'll come back, but uh I hadn't watched this in a long time either and I watched it again <laughs> last night and man, that moment at the end when he just says Maggie, lock the door. It's like you just you lock the door. You don't even hesitate. Yeah. It's, and and she i again give liz taylor credit she's got that in her face she's just like yes sir i will lock the door absolutely i'm going to do that thank jesus finally <laughs> oh so cat on a hot tin roof like where do we even start with this movie so it's um obviously it's based on the tennessee williams play and um elizabeth and Paul play a married couple, Brick and Maggie. He is an ex-football player and he is also an alcoholic and he is currently nursing a broken leg, although it doesn't seem to be that broken with some of the things he's able to do. But (laughs) um, anyway, symbolic. Uh, Everything in this film is symbolic because it's Tennessee Williams. Yes, that is very (laughs) true. Very true. Anyway, um, they have enough problems and his brother and sister-in-law and their hundred thousand kids um are running around living there too and then big daddy shows up and big mama and big daddy has just gotten the news that he is not gonna die except for that he is (laughs) and uh this is an interesting one it's um i always am fascinated by the way people take plays and turn them into films and how sometimes that is done very very successfully and sometimes it is not um, and when I say sometimes not, it's like if you take a play and put it on film, but it still feels like a play to me, that's like, why is this not still just a play then? But I feel like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof does such a good job of turning this house into another character um, and really making good use of the space. And so it it to me, it, it doesn't feel like I'm just watching a Tennessee Williams play. It really does feel like cinema, you know? do you have thoughts yeah yeah it's it it doesn't it isn't play like right you don't you don't get the sense that you're watching things happen on a set or something like that um and i think that's a good point that the house we very rarely leave the house i think there's one scene where they go to the airfield that you're outside of the the actual house yeah um and and that's that's pretty much it so you but you see like whole different facets of it and Go like the the sequence where Big Daddy and Brick go down to the basement and all of the things that they're surrounded by, all of that stuff. There's there's a 
set like quality to it, but as with a lot of Tennessee Williams, it's very much engaged with its environment. And um, and yeah, I, I I agree with you that there's that sensation of the house being its own character, that these these characters are trapped by it and trapped by the the whole world and the family, the family unit in particular, that um has been constructed around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all those no neck monster children. <laughs> Again, Liz Taylor just being the most relatable woman. I just like, why you little no neck monsters? <laughs> I love her so much. So let's talk about Elizabeth. We'll talk about Paul too, but let's talk about Elizabeth in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, as we as we already mentioned, this is where she really has fully kind of become an adult star. She's got a couple of Oscar nominations by this point. She gets nominated for this movie. Um and this is one of the uh this is a very sexually charged film for a lot of reasons <laughs> um so let's what are your thoughts on that uh i i don't want to misquote paul newman on this but i think that i read a quote from him that he was like he had the hardest job in the world he had to pretend to be a man who didn't want to sleep with liz taylor <laughs> um and and i mean i think that that's true but what it really so much of this film and especially Liz Taylor's role in it is really about the chemistry between the two of them. And apparently neither one of them were 100% happy with the film. And there were other reasons for that, but the, the there you have fantastic chemistry together. Mm -hmm. You absolutely believe first of all, that these are two people who would have met and been in love with each other and (laughs) had a lot of sex early on. (laughs) And then you've got this falling out that happens between them. And I think we should talk a little bit about that in a minute, but, um, but uh, particularly that the opening scene with the two of them um, in the room and the contempt and anger that they have towards each other and at the same time the absolute desire and there is this great moment where she's looking in the mirror and he's looking at her over her shoulder Mm -hmm. and she sees him looking at her and just the play of uh of like the the exchange of looks and the fact that he's trying so hard to conceal the fact that he's still in love with his wife like he he still wants his wife and he's but he's angry at her and he's hurt and he's ashamed and he has all of this guilt um, that he doesn't want to show that to her. And it's it's a really interesting opening sequence. And you you just I, yeah, you buy them. I, I buy that they start the film where they do and they end where they do. Um, mm-hmm. And you could kind of see the progress between the two of them and also the some of the undercurrents of other things as well. It's so much of the issue is about the fact that she's not pregnant. She has, she, she doesn't have a child and that might result in him and her losing uh, the, any kind of rights that they have to the land, any rights that they have to big daddy's fortune, anything like that, because so much emphasis is put on the fact that, you know, you should have babies, you should have things that are going to exist beyond you. And then that is of course paralleled with, gooper and (laughs) his wife who are like just way too fertile and have all of these monstrous little children running around oh my gosh those kids they drive me nuts i was like just go plan another room why are you running in here stop it 
I, I love the moment. It's very early where, she, where Liz Taylor just like jams a whole bunch of ice cream into that small girl's face. <laughs> and I was just like, yes, yes. And then May, the, the sister-in-law, is just like runs to her husband and is just like, can you believe this? And he's just like, well, I told her to wash her hands. It's fine. <laughs> like he's such a checked out dad. He could not care less. Um, so let's talk about Skipper yeah because this whole film really hinges on and by that well i mean there's a lot of things this film hinges on but the relationship or the breakdown of the relationship between brick and maggie comes down to his friend skipper who um committed suicide and the reasons behind that Um, yeah (laughs) i don't even talk about that well, I, I think that we need to note that um, one of the reasons why Newman and Taylor and Tennessee Williams himself were not happy with this film is because there were changes that had to be made mm-hmm. um, in order in order to please the censors. That it's very clear in the original play that there was not necessarily a homosexual relationship between um, Brick and Skipper, like in, in the sense that it wasn't consummated, but that there was a homosexual attraction and desire between the two of them. And that that is part of what has kind of happened between Brick and Maggie, that um, Skipper tries to have sex with Maggie in order to prove that he is not gay and then he can't. And then he eventually reveals to Brick that, you know, he was in love with Brick and that that is ultimately what spurns Skipper's suicide. The film can't go that far. Right. Although I do, I do think watching it again, I think that the film does give evidence of it like it can never it can't say skipper was gay but the way that they talk about skipper and the way that they talk about brick and skipper's relationship and the way that brick reacts to mention of him mm-hmm. especially early in the film where he just like throws a fit every time someone yeah. brings up skipper um there there's an indication that this is definitely far more than a friendship that there was something else going on that the film can't come right out and talk about it, but gets very, very close to doing that. And so even with the changes that had to be made, I I do think that for the time period, this actually manages to go pretty far in its depiction of, you know, repressed homosexuality and repressed homosexual desire. Yeah. Um, I think because it's interesting. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, the way that the film tries to kind of mask it is by, creating this this idea that there was more of like um skipper was sort of standing in for the relationship brick didn't have with his father who just was so busy building his empire that he wasn't paying attention to his son and so that's where they kind of try to mask it is like oh well it was more of a father-son relationship but um which i think people watching i mean i don't know i wasn't there but i think people watching in 1958 i could see how they could just accept that and miss the subtext but watching it in 2023 with our understanding of you know psychology and sociology being a little bit different than it would have been back then um it's a lot easier to see like oh no 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 that this is very much uh something much different from that so um yeah it you know, I always go back to like, and, and at least in in this last viewing, I've I've done <laughs> cat on a hot tin roof. Um, 
the the number of times characters refer to skippers like oh you're big strong man you're big strong football mm-hmm. hero all of that stuff the way in which skipper depended on brick and needed brick to be there and like brick basically you know giving up his career in a lot of ways in order for skipper to have a team all of that kind of thing and i and i always it's hard not to read that that doesn't read to me as father figure no or friend right it it very much reads as at least the other characters implying you had a there was a deeper sexual romantic something relationship with skipper that you are not talking about and that no one is talking about mm-hmm. um and and again i i think that the the film can only go so far in dealing with that and it definitely they say kind of masks a lot of that or tries to but it's still there it's really hard for me and it maybe it would have been easier in 1958 but it's really hard for me to read this film as anything other than a, at least that portion of it about repressed homosexuality oh yeah yeah absolutely um, to me, that is actually kind of the point. And I think that that's why uh, it's easier. The the So much emotion involved in the this relationship with, with Skipper is why it'd be easy for me to believe that Paul Newman is willing to not have sex with Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> Just <laughs> well, to bring I'm, it back around to that. Yeah, it's interesting. The other day someone was like, well, it's, it's really weird because they have this great chemistry together, but Brick is gay. I was like, well, Brick is, is he? gay. I don't really think that Brick is gay. I think that Brick is is pos- possibly bisexual, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's so- certainly something that is not allowed. But the way that the film plays it, and I have not seen it on stage, so I can't say that um, if, the, if it would be different. But the way that the film plays it is that he, part of the issue and part of the reason why he's so kind of repulsed by Maggie for so long is because she represents a failure for him. Yeah. And she represents kind of the things that he does that he's not able to acknowledge in himself. So he's not really able to deal with the fact that, you know, he also had this homosexual desire for his friend mm-hmm. um, or, and that his friend felt the same way about him there, that there was a romance basically between the two of them yeah. that never could be consummated, that never could be discussed. Right. Um, and, and, and yeah, she definitely represents that. She's also part of the reason why Skipper's not in his life anymore. It's not her fault, yeah. but uh but she also represents that being taken away from from him, regardless of whether it was romantic for him or not. This is a relationship that really was important and he doesn't have anymore. And he sees her as this constant reminder of that. Well, and he he uses her in much the same way that he uses alcohol as a way to kind of push off his guilt. Yeah. So he rather than dealing with the guilt and the shame that is a part of his what happened to skipper um he hates maggie he like directs that ire and that anger and that and also the the self-flagellation at some level because he obviously wants her he obviously wants to sleep with her Mm -hmm. um but he refuses to let himself do that because he's it's not so much that he's repulsed by her he's repulsed by what she represents for him and Mm -hmm. in the things that he hates in himself he also that, feels this need to escape. punish himself. Yeah, he can't escape from it. So he he punishes and other people as well. He punishes yeah. her. He punishes everybody. He he at this point would be totally content to just drink himself to death because he he either he feels like he deserves it or at least he just doesn't want to uh he doesn't want to continue in this miserable life that he's living. 
I, I do. I do. There's a moment where um, Big Daddy uh, actually has Burl Ives, who's fantastic. In this I love film. him. I love yeah. Burl Ives in this film. Um, he, he gives so much to that character, but he him and Brick are having this conversation about drinking and about alcohol. And Big Daddy at, at this one moment is one of the few times where he's like, totally honest it's just like why wow, you're an alcoholic <laughs> and and brick is like yes sir i am a real alcoholic <laughs> just like well that he's just like my god you actually are an alcoholic <laughs> like, this is just beyond anything yep yeah um any other thoughts about about elizabeth taylor in in this movie i she gives a great performance and um I, I do think that, you know, even more so than Giant, I don't like Giant particularly as a film. Uh, I think that she's good in it. But in this one, she really gets to flex her muscles more. And I do think that, Liz, you know, we don't often talk about the fact that Liz Taylor is actually a good actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, she really was a good actress. She wasn't just an image. She wasn't just this like ideal or or um kind of or and and really wasn't just her personal life either there there was a lot of depth there and i think that she gives maggie a great deal of depth yeah um and and particularly you know i don't think that that happens really without paul newman because the two of them play off of each other so well but it works she's she's perfectly cast for this part um i can't imagine anyone else playing that role in that film yeah i really can't either and she she really is um was a an incredible talent and it's interesting because if you just look at the um the films that she was nominated for of course like i said she was nominated for best actress for cat on a hot tin roof but she uh if you just look at all of the the films that she was nominated for and then all the films that she just did over the course of her career Mm -hmm. it's such an interesting um such an interesting collection because so many of them are so different from each other. She's first nominated uh, in 1957 for Rain Tree County and then this one and then a year later. So she's nominated like four years in a row. Um, then she is again for Suddenly Last Summer. Um, she finally wins for Butterfield 8 and I actually did uh, I was a guest on um, on the runner up is podcast and we were talking about the race of 1960 and talking about butterfield eight and the apartment and um the the race of that year and um it's such an interesting it's an interesting film and it's also just such an interesting lineup and the fact that this is where she you know kind of quote unquote finally won her oscar um for this particular role and as um Shirley MacLaine famously said she lost to a tracheotomy. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you know that story, but no. Uh, yeah. So basically Butterfield eight had come out, um, the, which have you seen that movie? I have. I really don't like it. It's not good, but she's the best it, part of it. She She's good in it. And, mm-hmm. but I guess she didn't even really like it. My understanding no, was that no. like, she didn't like the role either. Yeah, it had a lot of problems. I think that it um I think that it's better than a lot of people say that it, like to me I think that there's more uh more redemptive about it than um than I had originally thought, but it's not a good movie. Um she is fantastic in it, but but she's nominated against like I said Shirley MacLaine for The Apartment, she's up against Greer Garson, um I'm blanking on the others. 
but ultimately elizabeth taylor got really really sick during this like during the awards season basically and like had pneumonia she was in the hospital she ended up having a life-saving tracheotomy she almost died and so yeah so then later shirley mclean was talking about it because everyone had kind of thought she was gonna win and later she just said yeah i lost to a tracheotomy because <laughs> how do you beat that <laughs> i mean yeah that's that's one of those it's a it's a shame that that was the the oscar that that taylor got though because yeah. She is in much better films mm-hmm. and gives much better performances, I think. And particularly given that she didn't even like the film that, right. she, that she had done. Right. Just like, oh, great. So I'm going to she's going to be remembered like as the, she's the Oscar winner, just like for Butterfield 8. And it does also make people think that Butterfield 8 is a better film than it actually is. That is also true. Yeah. Because so they're like, oh, you have to see this movie. And I remember watching it and just being like, what the fuck? Like, why? What? Why? Why yeah. would you make me watch this? Yeah oh yeah yeah but then she does one win one more time um a few years later 1966 who's afraid of virginia wolf so which she is fantastic in. that is probably one of her very best roles um yeah and but she continued working for many years after that that was kind of her end of her awards run but she um you know she kept working into the into the 90s um definitely so um and of course anybody who grew up in the 80s and early 90s probably remembers the white diamonds commercials um but she really became especially in her later years known for her humanitarian work and Mm -hmm. um she did a lot of really amazing um things for for charities especially benefiting children so and aids and um yeah that's elizabeth taylor any other thoughts uh i think most of the films except for maybe cat on a hot tin roof uh but both father of the bride and um, a place in the center are available to watch for free right now at least cat on uh, a hot tin roof is on the watch tcm app or if you have okay. cable you can get it on demand on tcm i think you can rent it as well like if you if you want yeah. to spend the money trying i own a, a dvd collection of like tennessee williams place nice. <laughs> um and i also have to say we didn't talk about it but it is one of my favorite films not necessarily for elizabeth taylor but for like the entire film the Suddenly last summer no <laughs> last summer screw you yes the Flintstones is also a very fun movie. It I love the Flintstones. <laughs> um, but Suddenly Last Summer is just like, if you've ever want to be terrified by Katherine Hepburn, like <laughs> just absolutely creeped out and just be like, there is something wrong here and I want to leave immediately, like watch Suddenly Last Summer. It is a fantastic film. Um, and it's also Liz Taylor and Montgomery Clift again. And it's primarily the three of them, honestly, like on screen together. Uh, and... That is another one that like that's a, it's another Tennessee Williams. And when you find out, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but when you find out what happened last summer mm-hmm. uh, and why Liz Taylor is like an insane asylum, <laughs> you just begin to go like, like I remember watching this film on TCM in the middle of the day when I was like a teenager. And I literally oh was like, I 
what are you talking about? Like, what, what do you mean by this? And then I looked it up and I was like, I still, you mean that this actually happened? This is, <laughs> this is what happens in this movie. Like, I didn't misunderstand that. Mm-hmm. It is fantastic. Like, seriously, um, it is. anyone who's not seen suddenly last summer, please go watch it. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, it is available to rent. It's not streaming anywhere right now. Rent it. Like rent it's, it. Worth it's worth it. It's, yeah, it's, it's worth the three bucks. So Do it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to wrap things up for this week. Yay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. This has been a good one. Um, I, I am so glad we got to do this. This was a fun way to celebrate my birthday. Um, and happy birthday to you, Karen, as thank well. Thank you so much. Thank you. So we would like to thank everyone for listening and supporting the show. We would especially like to thank our patrons who are Ollie, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Matt, Michelle, MK, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and and that's it. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for your support. If you would like to become a patron yourself, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen dame. If you subscribe, you get early episodes or early access to the episodes. You get bonus episodes um, and some other fun things. If you are owed any any stuff, stickers or buttons or anything like that, please make sure to let us know. Um, we've been trying to to get all of that sorted out and i think we're finally at the point where everybody has well you have what you needed for me and oh the u.s postal service is the bane of my existence sometimes but yeah anyway. as we said last week blame the u.s postal service this yes. this one we we've been working very hard on this it's we just, yeah it's been silly yeah it's been very silly that's all i have to say I, you know, I would love to have just put, I should have just put a GPS tracker thing in that envelope because I would love to know the journey it has been on for two months. <laughs> so. I I, on, I honestly think that like it sat in a post office somewhere. It must Because have. The, the postmark on it apparently was like February 12th. Yeah, that's so, so. It did not actually get postmarked until February. This was mailed out, by the way, in like December. Yeah. And uh, and I still don't know where the other half of everything is because I still have not received those either. It's so weird. Uh, but we'll see. We'll yeah. See. But yes. So if we owe you something, please let us know and, and we will get things out to you immediately. Yes, definitely. Um. So we also have our Zazzle store and our Ko-Fi, Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame pod and Ko-Fi.com slash Citizen Dame. Um, we do have a donate button too on our website. Now, just so you know, we're not like making tons of money on this website. We're not making any money on our podcast. This is just going to pay the bills. So um, so if you are interested in contributing, we really, really appreciate it. It just helps us keep things running. So um our website, by the way, is citizendamepod.com, and there's some new reviews there, some new reviews coming, um, lots of fun stuff. We are available by email if you'd like to send us a message, citizendamepod at gmail.com. And of course, we're on all the socials, Twitter and Instagram. We're at citizendamepod. Mastodon, you can sign up for us there. We haven't started posting yet, but Twitter keeps, you know, keeps seeming like it's going to shut down. So we might pivot there any minute. Yes. The slow decline of Twitter. Um, But if you want to just go ahead and follow us there, just to be ready for when we do inevitably switch over it's citizen dame pod at mastodon.social. 
And we are on Letterboxd too. This is also a great way to find us. We have a Letterboxd HQ and that is at Citizen Dame. We are also available individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on, well, I'm on all the socials at LH Business. And I am on all the socials at Karen M. Peterson. So that is going to wrap things up for this week. We're so glad you listened to us and we will catch you next time. Oh, truth is something desperate, and Maggie's got it. Believe me, it is desperate, and she has got it. Why don't you say something, honey? All right, honey. Shut up! Maggie? Yes? Come on up here. Yes, sir. girl's got life in her all right thank you for keeping still for backing me up in my lie maggie we are through with lies and liars in this house lock the door <laughs>